Okay, my name is John Lee. Um, I've um, been involved in the technology scene here in Cambridge for over 25 years. I first came to Cambridge when um, I met Clive Sinclair. Some of you will know his name and the products he produced. Uh, but I, I was brought in just to help him reorganize his business after undue optimism got him into trouble. Um, and that business en ended up being sold to Amstrad. Um, but before I start, can I just get a show of hands? How many people have raised capital? Okay. How many people are looking to raise capital? And what, what are the others? People who haven't put their hands up, what are they looking for? Are they just currently working on a plan, not quite sure what they want to do? Okay. Can I ask another question? Uh, how many of you are investors? And there are quite a few as well in the room. Okay. Um, so um, what I'm going to explain today is, um, is um, really my experience of, of, of 25 to 30 years. I've done 10 startups in the last 25 years. Three have become public companies. Um, six have been sold. But I still make mistakes. I'm still learning. Uh, and so I'm hoping just to pass on some of the things that I have learned uh, and gained over those years. Um, I've raised in total about 500 million pounds. The lowest amount I raised was a million, and the highest was over 100 million. At DisplayLink, it's on the public record, DisplayLink has raised over $80 million. But just remember that the amount you raise determines the size of business you need to become. So if you're going to raise, say, 100 million pounds, and on the basis that investors expect to get a 10 times exit, your business has to be worth a billion pounds in five years' time. And that means that if you have revenues of, if you sell on a four times revenue multiple, your revenues have to be 250 million. So the more you raise, the harder it is to get the return for the investors. And don't forget, investors also, it's a numbers game for the venture capital market. And that's what I'll speak mostly about because I don't have any experience of private equity, but it's mostly the venture <laughs> capital market. It's a numbers game. For every 10 investments they make, they hope they get one Microsoft, Microsoft one Google, one Oracle. They don't really care about the others. So it is a numbers game. People are looking for a very, very big multiple on investment. Um, just a couple of things. Not, not, these haven't come because of my experience in business. My, my father was, uh, was a naval officer, had, had knew nothing about business, but he said two things to me, and I think it's always stood me in good stead, and I would pass it on, which is, one, you get judged by the company you keep. Always be around good, honest people. Um, be always transparent. And, and, and reputation is everything. So, Reputation is, can be so easily lost by saying something that's untrue or, or lacking integrity. So money comes and goes. You can make money, you can lose money. And that's very transient. But once your reputation has gone, it's gone forever. You never get it back. So bear, bear that in mind. You get judged by the company you keep. And that's relevant because I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And your reputation is absolutely everything, particularly in a place like Cambridge, where they say that if you kick somebody, everybody limps. It's really important that your reputation is the highest it can be. Um, so let me talk about the first thing. You're, you're starting to put a plan together. You have an idea. You may have a product. Be totally obsessive about who your customer is, what your product is, and the market you're serving. The number of times I hear somebody say, our, our, market, our addressable market is 10 billion. But actually, when you get into it, it's actually much smaller than that. And most venture capital providers want to 
want to invest in businesses that have at least a 500 million pound or dollar market size. That's, a, that's what they call a served market. Um, and the reason for that is if you have 10% of that market, you might have a business worth 50 million of revenue. But so, so if, I'm in, if I'm supplying, say, sheep food to a rare breeds farm, it's no good me saying the farming market in the UK is 500 million or 500 billion, because actually I'm only the addressable market for feed for, you know, um, for Scottish rare breed sheep may only be 200,000 pounds. So you really need to be very critical because otherwise you'll just be a busy fool. Just make sure you really segment the market and you make sure it's like for like. So you have a total addressable market, which is called what we call a TAM, and then you have a SAM, which is a served addressable market, and then you have your share of the market. So be very, very articulate and very, very disciplined to make sure you understand the market you're serving. Um, you need to define your product very clearly, who you're, who you're addressing, what your customer is. And we find here in Cambridge quite often that engineers are perfectionists. They always want to get the best product to market first, always get the minimally viable product out to market first, the product you can get away with and then improve after. Don't, don't waste time trying to get a perfect product. It'll just take you too long, uh, and you end up um, finding that you don't achieve your objectives. Make sure you always ask the question, what's the problem you're solving? So whose problem do you solve, and why do you solve it? And what's, what's that problem solving worth to that customer? Because it might help you work out what you should be pricing the product at. Um, uh, and is the market ready for your product? At DisplayLink, the first five years of the company um, it developed a technology chasing a market. There wasn't a market for it. After five years, the market came of age. So we were a bit lucky because we could have, it could have been longer than that. So make sure that there is a, a market need for your product. Don't just think you've got to have the fantastic technology. And because it's so fantastic, people will want to buy it. Unless there's a need, unless you solve a problem, nobody's going to buy it. And validate, keep validating your offering, your product, your ideas. Uh, and the, best, the first way to do that is to actually get feedback from customers. But the best way of all, and the one that will convince venture capitalists invest in you, is that customers pay you for your product or service. Paying customers is what they're looking to see. So be obsessive about your customer. Be totally obsessive about your product. Make sure it's minimally viable and really understand your market. Um, the next thing I'd suggest is find a mentor. There are plenty of people around who will say, yes, I'm happy to work with you as your chairman, as your mentor, but can you pay me X? You want to find a mentor who doesn't want to be paid, who believes in you and believes in your business. There are plenty of them. And then when you get going and you've raised your money, then you can probably pay somebody something. But don't take on mentors unless they absolutely do it for the belief in you and the belief in your business and your idea. Um, develop relationships with funders well in advance of when you need to raise capital. Um, it takes a long time to raise capital. And sometimes it's a good idea just to go and speak to some funders, usually through an introduction. Don't go cold calling, but um, find, an, find a, ch a chum of yours who knows somebody in venture capital and just go and call them and say, can I spend half an hour with you in a coffee? I just want to chat about an idea and tell you where we're taking it. And you may find they'll help you shape it. And I think if you go to a, a venture capital without a clear proposition, there's nothing wrong with that, as long as you make it clear that there's no proposition, that you just want to explore an idea. Um, funding comes with accountability and responsibility. When you take on funding, 
You either add a work wife or a work husband to your business. That means you have to be accountable. And some people want the money, but without the responsibility. You do need to think very clearly about if you want to raise money, you have additional responsibilities. And you've been used as, as part of a team to work together and you share ideas. But once you have a third party coming on, you have to be absolutely accountable. And honest. it's the point about um, reputation. You have to be honest, transparent, total integrity, and make sure you share good times and bad times. But you have to, um, you have to recognize that it is a marriage that has additional responsibilities. Um, Always when you're raising money, try and create some competitive tension. The better your product is, the better you are as a team, the more competitive tension. You, that will just happen automatically. Um, so if people think you've got a wow idea and the market's big enough uh, and your team's good and strong, uh, don't have to be experienced. If you've got a good mentor, you can have an inexperienced team. Then you'll find there'll be a number of people trying to help you fund the business. Um, and just remember, all... Funders will say they add value to your business. Very few do. They see money as a commodity. They, they, they don't really want to spend the time getting involved in your business. They may attend board meetings, but it'll be more about check, uh, tick boxing. Be very little strategy they'll add, very little you know, value add at all. So just make sure you understand what they can add and, and be really skeptical when they say to you, we can add value. We can add value over this funder or that funder. Venture capital funders really do. You have to do it yourself. And that's why having a good mentor and a good team around you is so important. Um, always raise more than you think. So there's always this debate about, I don't want to give more than 20% of my company away. Don't worry about it. You're better off giving 30 or 40% of your company away if you can raise enough money. Because the last thing you want to do is find that it takes longer, you've hit problems, and you've got this boat and it's halfway across the river and you can't get across. Because nobody's going to fund you again halfway through across the river. You're better off taking more money and just making sure you get across the other side. So just think about contingencies. Think about what could go wrong. And if you think you need to raise two million, maybe you should be raising three or four. But just swallow hard on it. It means you give away more equity. But actually, the better that your business is seen, the higher the value you might get for it as well. So you might find you could raise more money without giving as much away as you thought. But do raise more money than you think. You'll, 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 I don't think you'll ever be disappointed by that. Um, and the other thing is, is when things go wrong, pivot quickly. Really make that change quickly. It's the same with teams. You'll find for every 10 startups that get going, probably one will survive. For every 10 startups that go, of the, teams, of the 10 teams in those startups, almost certainly every single one of them will go through change. There will be people who are good at startup who are not good at the next phase. There are people who are good at administration, not very good at entrepreneurial activities. People who are good at sales and marketing hate doing finance. Just recognize what you're good at and recognize that as you get bigger, a more experienced CEO will absolutely take all the strain off you and make life a lot easier and will actually build more value. But it means, you know, if many founders start off as CEO, it's, uh, you're, being, you're being parted from your baby. And it's quite hard, it's emotional, but actually you need to do it. And um, a lot of companies find that they don't make that change fast enough. And in the end, the business doesn't progress because you haven't got that expertise when you need it. And there are sorry, three or four phases. There's the phase of startup, there's, there's uh, growth, there's rapid growth and exit. Uh, you might need different people at each of those stages. And just be, 
mature enough and candid with your, each other that actually that might be the right thing to do. And we always tell people when we fund, you know, at some stage we may ask you to take a different role in the business. At some stage you might not be the right CEO for the business. So manage your expectations amongst your team. Just be honest with each other. Um, it usually pays off. Um, the, the last thing I was going to talk about is focus on doing something really well. Don't do multiple bets. Don't hedge. Have courage of your convictions. Sometimes it pays off. Many times it pays off. But if you're trying to do too many things, you'll spread yourself so thinly, you won't achieve anything. So focus on one good thing and just go for it. And if it fails, start up another business and do something else. It doesn't matter if it fails, but it will more likely fail if you try and do too many things. So bring, you want to try and bring about the conditions that create success um, and not failure. Um, my, my, I keep talking about my father. My father used to say to, to me, when you're, when you're cutting wood, measure twice, cut once. What startups do is they measure once and cut twice. So what you need to do is you need to plan well and execute really well, but execute once. Don't have a plan and then find, oh, well, that execution plan didn't work, I'll do another one. Really plan it, think it through, be thoughtful, take your time over it, but then you execute well. And execution is really key. Um, and then the final thing I just add is options, option plans. Make sure you get decent option plans. There's a good scheme in the UK called an EMI, an EMI option plan. It's very rigorous. You have to be very compliant. Um, it means that any capital gain you make, if you've held those shares for more than one year, is taxed at only 10%, as opposed to income tax, which is taxed at uh, 47%, including insurance. Um, so it's a huge incentive, but EMI plans are very rigorous. There's a lot of compliance on them, but if you get them right, they're really valuable. So start thinking about option plans when you start to raise capital. Don't, don't forget it. Okay, I think that was all I wanted to say. I don't have done for time. Have I kept Okay, fine. Thank you very much. So uh, before we move on to Iris, I think, is there any uh, quick question from the audience? We're going to change the rules, you know. Uh, usually we wait until the end, but anybody has a quick question for John? Yes, two questions. So let's start. Thanks, John. That was really fascinating. Just a, a question about when uh, the best time to raise capital, in your opinion, when should one do that? So we've got a company, we've started generating some customer revenue, but we want to demonstrate, for example, recurring revenue, and maybe we want to try and diversify from just one big customer to a number of customers. When is the best time to raise capital? Well, think? I think, have you got a plan together? Have you got a proper articulated business plan in the form of slides and... Um, well, this is um, Chris Daniels. He's my new commercial chief commercial officer, okay. and we're in the process of updating. Okay, so you need a plan. You need to plan. You need to be able to communicate a plan. Um, and there is a very good um, book called the British Venture Capital Association Handbook, which um, has in it a list of all the venture capital firms and the sectors they address. So you need to look at the sector you're addressing, and then look down the column and see which which companies are best. The answer to your question is multifaceted. It depends how much you're looking to raise. Um, if you're looking to raise 250,000 pounds, it's really hard. 
people have to do the same amount of due diligence whether you're raising 5 million or 250,000, so probably raise more. And that speaks to the other point about um, you know, making sure you've got enough runway to cover contingencies. But you need a good plan. You need, to, you need to have understood your customer, your product, and your market. And they're the three things that the VCs really, really focus on. Your, your customer, who they are, if they're paying. I wouldn't be too worried about recurring revenue. That's really nice to get, because it does sort of de-risk the business a bit if you've got a customer paying every year and you haven't got to resell to that customer. But make sure the product's robust, you've thought it through, um, and, and make sure you understand the size of the market, because they'll ask you those questions. If the market's only 10 million pounds, it'd be really tough to get venture capital for it. And it might mean you have to change your plan to address a bigger market. So don't go in and then suddenly find you've shot, you've shot your bolt, because uh, you, you often don't get a second chance. I didn't really answer your question specifically, because there's sort of lots of unknowns there. But, but it's that measure twice, cut once bit. So adding, uh, complementing to what John just said, um, raising money always takes longer than you think. And uh, don't forget to raise money when you don't need it because uh, the closer you are to uh, running out of cash, uh, the less um, negotiation uh, power you have, and um, raising money will take longer. Uh, John said something in his talk earlier on about uh, the uh, engineer syndrome and the fact that everything has to be perfect. Um, do not wait until you have the perfect business to raise money because if you are applying the engineering uh, syndrome to the raising money, uh, you'll never be ready. Okay, there was a question there. Let's do a quick one. Yep. Yeah. Uh, thank you for your insights. Um, what struck me a little bit was your comment on always raise more than you think you would need, because I equally, so I hear often that people raise too much money, um, that they might risk having a down round in the next one, that they just because they've heard, okay, people of your size usually ask for one and a half million, they ask for one and a half million, and then they come to the venture capitalist and they say, what do you actually, what, what are the milestones, what do you need the money for? So how do you mitigate the asking for more money than you might think, but not asking too much? So how do you yeah. find the sweet spot? Yeah, it really comes about by making sure that you have a plan A, which is the plan you're going to execute on, that you have a plan B, which shows well, what happens if we don't get these things done in this time scale and cost that out. But you know, more down rounds come about because people raise too little money than, than the other way around. And uh, if you're halfway across this river and you haven't achieved what you're supposed to achieve, you will, if, if you're lucky enough to still get money, it will be at a lower valuation. So raising too little money is more likely to bring about the down round than anything else. I think tranching is a different thing. Um, tranching is a different thing. It's about conditions that you need to meet. But just make sure when you set conditions that you are, you've got enough elastic in it that you, you, if, you, if you think you're going to do something in, in June of this year, say it's September. Just give yourself more time and then make sure you're funded to that point as well. So the first tranche needs to take you not to June but to September. Just always, always be more conservative. You can be really ambitious in your plans, but be conservative in your capital raising. So just to reconcile and just wanting to make sure you didn't, don't misunderstand, uh, John didn't oppose uh, raising money in tranches, and I think he probably would recommend that. Yeah. Um, what John is saying is 
plan your growth and plan your growth over five years and say for the next one year I need one million for the next uh, for then from one year to three years I'm going to need five million and then I'm going to need 10 million and then go for a run uh, leave it a week and then come back relook at your numbers and then uh, up those numbers because you will need for each tranche more than you've budgeted for and I would absolutely second the fact that you need to raise money in tranches and that helps with uh, hiring valu uh, higher valuations and others. But what the point that John was making very strongly and I would absolutely second is that lots of entrepreneurs think that they're being smart by um, raising less and cutting on uh, the margins and they wake up and they're drowning in the middle of the river because they don't have enough oxygen to go on to the other side. Yeah, and also if you're on a tranche-based funding plan and you think you're going to miss your tranche, even though it's a conservative, go and talk to your funders well, well before that happens because people don't like surprises. So, you know, if it's a, if it's a June tranche and you, in, and, well, not June, if it's September and you're now in May and you think you're going to miss it, share it now. Don't share it in September because people will trust you much more for that and that will come back in huge dividends. Can we please thank John again? Iris, you're up next. Hello, everybody. It's a pleasure being here. And um, after John has given a very fantastic overview, I thought of um, um, focusing on the fundraising exercise itself. So just a bit of background about me. I uh, started as a scientist. I have a PhD in biochemistry. And then biotech and medtech opened up, and I, f I discovered the uh, entrepreneurship virus, <laughs> and I went and set up a company, and I, there was no way back. And then I set up another company. The, the first one was uh, acquired, and uh, I set up another company. I took it to India, and I then set up operations in India, and now I'm running a company, a pan-India company, uh, that does the Indo... British uh, um, focuses on Indo-British corridor, bringing uh, big and small t uh, companies to India. We brought MNS to India and other big companies, but a lot of SMEs. I helped them raise funds and I helped them set up the operations, and I helped them grow their businesses. And we've been we, we deal with hundreds of, of companies a year. Um, I also sit together with John on the investment committee of Cambridge. So from uh, raising funds as a startup, uh, um, you know, being in a startup uh, company, I'm, I have been investing in companies as well. And I was thinking that perhaps I will share a few of my tips with you as to what I, th I think is really important, what really sells and uh, perhaps a bit of the things that didn't work, because as long as the balance is that we do enough good things, uh, and th then, then it's good. But of course, we make a lot of uh, mistakes on the way. So the first thing that I would say, the first tip I would say, and if I had to distill uh, my uh, tips uh, for investment uh, uh, raise, I would say, first of all, make sure that you have a clear and brief story to tell. That what you're telling your investors is clear to them. 
The second thing I would say is uh, present the market scope and show where uh, the vision of your product, where will it go, who's going to buy it, and what's the size of it. I will, I will uh, elaborate on each of them. The third thing, and it's really important, especially when you have a, a very young company, wow the investors with your team. Investors would invest not just in the product, but mainly, especially in early stages, in the team. So if I, if I take one at a time and we'll elaborate a little bit, let's talk about the brief story. Sometimes it's very intuitive. We know it's something that everybody experiences in life. But for example, I was a director of a company called Touchlight Genetics, which uh, developed a cassette for DNA amplification for next generation medicine. There is, it's only starting now, it was about 10 years ago, it was very difficult to explain what it is exactly. Remember that your investors, nearly all of them, would not be experts in your, in your field. They made some money, they want to invest, but they don't know much about the field that you are experts of, right? If you come and, and throw a lot of jargon words, it will not buy them in. You have to, to distill and to refine your story and try it with your mother's, your, your brothers, your friends, your teenage friends. If a teenager can understand that, then investors would. And I'm not trying to say that investors are, are stupid by any chance, but they don't know what you're telling them about. And if you start with a big story and they don't understand, they will usually not invest. So this is really, really important. It took us the first two months of the investment in touch genetics, we wasted. We didn't know to tell the story right. We could see the curtains go down. We were trying, struggling. Each time we tried something else, and then we said, okay, we're just going to tell, you know, write the story. It's like an author. You've got to start and, and tell it <clears throat> at the beginning. It's not so easy, but you've got to run it by people that will, you know, are not that important to you. I mean, important maybe personally, but not for the investment. When you go to invest, start with smaller, sort of less important uh, teams because you will not do as good at, as well at the beginning as you, you go along. So the story is really, really important. The second thing is the market. Niche products will find very difficult uh, investment rounds. You know, it will be very difficult to get uh, um, investment uh, for products that are niche. You've got to explain to the investors, and again, they're not from this field, so take it, this into account, what is the size of the market and how would you do that? Of course, statistics and numbers you will gain, but the best thing, as John said, is to get endorsement. Because they don't know, they're not sure about your product, the best thing for them is to hear that somebody that they do appreciate really appreciates your product. It sounds very simple, but so few companies do that. Big companies, and you can get endorsed by friends and family to them. It's enough that you, you, you sit with the CEO of a, a large company, you know, uh, in, informally, and tell your story. You will gain so much. A, you will know whether your product is really worthwhile. 
whether there is any need for this, this product, whether this company is happy for you to do maybe proof of concept with them. They will become semi-partners and then maybe they will become clients, right? So this uh, uh, journey together with a significant company will, will make huge uh, uh, um, difference in the valuation and in the credibility of your uh, product, service or whatever you uh, suggest to in the investors. I have an, an example for that as well. I was on the board of a company called uh, Side Diagnostics. We developed a device, diagnostic device uh, for the detection of malaria based on artificial intelligence. Now, it all sounds really great and the product was fantastic. Only that it was a sophisticated product and malaria is unfortunately in markets that are poor. So how do we match our great product in markets that uh, malaria treatment and malaria uh, uh, diagnostics is very cheap. How do we, how do we uh, um, overcome the gap? So what we did is we went to India, we decided that India would be our market because it's the biggest one country with malaria. And we looked for a key opinion, leaders, a key opinion leader. At the beginning, maybe you will not find companies that will uh, uh, be interested in you, so look for a key opinion leader in the field. We looked online and we found the head th that there is a National Institute for Malaria Research in India. We picked up the phone, there was a telephone number there, and we said, you know, we're a company doing diagnosis for malaria, could you meet us? And she said yes. And we went there with a spec of the device, and we said, what would work? This is your wish list. What would you like to see in the device? Believe it or not, we came back and we developed the whole of the device according to her specs. Because she was the head of this diagnostic of malaria in the WHO, World Health Organization, and the head of the India uh, uh, team or, or operations. So she was big enough to, to count on that if she says that this is right and this is wrong, then we would do as she does. Now, there was another thing that was so important by having her on board. She became our principal investigator when we did our research, but she became our ambassador because she was a part of that. She, it was her baby, sort of, all right? So when she went to her friends in the UN, in the WHO, Gates Foundation, she talked about our device. Do you see how it goes? So the beginning was slower, but then it really, really helped. Now, when we went to raise money and, and uh, we were asked, who can talk about your device, somebody objective, we gave her name. Now, on top of that, we connected to path labs. We, we identified the biggest path lab in Asia. And we asked them whether we could just get bloods from them. So they weren't real partners, but they helped us. But they became semi-partners, if you see what I mean. And then when we needed, and, and we told them about the project and we told them about the results. So when we needed the, uh, due diligence, they were also an industry partner or industry voucher for us, which meant that we could raise the money. And we raised it with our crowd, which is crowdfunding. They did huge amount of due diligence through these uh, uh, industry players. 
and we raised $5 million there. Now, the third thing, uh, which I think is really the make it or break it, is the team. Especially, as I say, when you have a starting point that is very close to the starting point, you go and raise money, people don't really know whether it would, you know, investors, would, whether it would work or not. So the best judgment that they would have is of your character. Who are you? Are you enthusiastic? Are you doing it for the money or for your dream? Are you very diligent? Are you a dreamer? Are you digesting it, eating it, dreaming it? These are the people that investors would like to see. But also they would look at the harmony between the team and they would look whether they like you, because they will then have to, to meet you again. Do they want to meet you again, right? These are very natural uh, questions that the investor not necessarily feels that he's asking himself, but these are the questions that they ask. Would you be ones that they will sooner or later have to climb a wall with you? Are you listening to him? Because if an investor asks you a question when you pitch and you brush it off, because you're not sure about the answer, Maybe he will not want to, he will get the, 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 the impression that when he comes and suggests something, maybe he will not listen. So this uh, raising money at the beginning of a journey, the team is a major, major uh, um, factor. And I can give you an example just very recently. I was involved in raising money for a cybersecurity company, three youngsters, 25 to 20, yeah, around 25 years old, with a nice idea. They had a round, uh, they went to, through connections, through a few industry leaders. Uh, they got a few nice names uh, of big banks and institutions that liked their product. And with this, they came to raise, actually they wanted to raise three millions. They didn't even have a business plan. What they said is we looked at all the cybersecurity fundraising in recent years. All of them raised between three and five million. So we believe that that's the amount that we need to raise. All right? This was it. No one, you know, no Excel, nothing. They raised in three and a half weeks, they raised five million dollars when they asked for three. Because everybody loved the team. They loved the way they th thought. They loved the way they answered, and they believed in them, they trusted them. This bond you've got to create with your uh, investor, with potential investors. Look, if you can, if, it's not always when you go to funds you don't really know who you're going to meet. But if you can, read about them, see what, 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 who they are. For example, when I, I, I ran, uh, um, I was developing a device for diabetes, uh, it, my main work was in India, and there are 50 million diabetics, so it was quite, uh, uh, it was quite uh, um, made sense that somebody would have diabetes or would have a neighbor of diabetic that is diabetic. So I always asked, do you know anybody diabetic? And this was a very good starting point, because I knew about them and then I could address it. So look into who your investors are. The very last thing, and here I will uh, uh, end, I would like to recommend a book called Pitch Anything. Pitch Anything is of uh, Oren Clough, and uh, he he's fantastic. I mean, he 
he's on YouTube and you can hear him. He's very confident, but not arrogant. And he comes into a room as a winner. And that's my very last thing. Don't think that because you raise money, you are beggars. You have gold in your hands that you will share with your investors to make them very uh, special, uh, rich, or famous, right? This is the spirit that you have to, not in an, any arrogant way, but you are sharing a win-win journey with your investors. Thank you very much. So, um, um, same as John, does anybody have a question for Iris? I'm, I, I didn't come closer. I wasn't pouncing on you because of time, but I was actually pouncing because I was uh, I see some uh, um, tensions here between John, who's saying you know plan, 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 and then you know um, raise money only carefully, and uh, you were saying business plan, well, this company just raised five million without a business plan. So I wanted some tension, I wanted some, you know, um, 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 I, I wanted uh, a very uh, diverse uh, panel. So uh, discuss, I saw your blood pressure go up and I was worried about having to call, you know, um, the emergency services. So uh, gut feel about somebody coming and saying, oh, well, you know, I looked at how many, uh, how much my, um, the competitors in the market have raised and decided to go for three million and raise five million dollars. I think what Iris describes is, is unusual. Yes, it is. It doesn't but it happen very often. It's not the normality. I mean, Bolterton, a big venture capital firm in London who are behind Kutter, they had, a, they had a team came to them and they camped on their doorstep and they wouldn't go away until Bolton had met them. And that on its own made them very interested in this team because they saw they had a persistence about them. They wouldn't say no. In the end, they backed them. And so you can get these idiosyncrasies. Um, but um, I do think, I do think, I'm not talking about wasting time, you know, losing the opportunity because the market can also go away from you if you take too long. I'm talking about just doing enough measuring I agree, if I may say, I'm yet to see one business plan that really happened, but it's a very important exercise to do because you, you need to create a watertight story, okay? You need to understand exactly how you will go at this point of time. It will change, most probably, but your investors will check you for the story, okay? So if you created a story and it is watertight, whether it will happen exactly as you're, you're predicting it or not, they can judge you by your business plan. So in this sense, definitely, you should. And I, I didn't imply that you shouldn't come with a business plan. I'm just, I just gave you a, an extreme case of how people raised money because probably the team was uh, special and they had uh, endorsement, very strong endorsement from the, uh, from the industry. Great. I, uh, sure. So I wonder, both John and Iris, your experience, but we see teams get back like that, but invariably that's where the team has a track record in itself, 
Um, so people who've been spun out of Facebook, there are, there are funds out there at the moment who are just looking for ex-Facebook employees. And they're just saying, we will back very, very smart people because they've done clever things before. I think it's, it's much harder if you don't have within your team that, that, you know, that track record to demonstrate you're capable of delivering. But that if you have that track record of delivering, just an idea, they will just say, it's a team, you'll get something interesting eventually. That, that's an excellent point, and this is something that we see here in Cambridge, where um, a lot of um, uh, backing is a bit incestuous. It's because people know each other, and because they funded the previous company, and the previous company was very successful. So, of course, the next one is going to be. So, um, um, if you've uh, exited with uh, SwiftKey, or with VocalIQ, or uh, with any of Herman Hauser's companies, then, you know, of course, anything you're going to touch um, is going to turn into gold. So just uh, carrying on into the tension, and I, I didn't do the seating plan, um, you know, Claire, thank you, um, between John and Iris, and um, I, I really want to go to one of your investment committees. It must be fascinating. Um, so, it is. <laughs> I, I, can I be a fly? So um, the uh, John said transparency. John said honesty. Uh, John said, you know. Um, don't tell a lie, because especially in a village like Cambridge, if you tell a lie, you're going to get caught. And, um, and Iris, um, I can recognize the Mediterranean in you, you know, I'm, uh, I, I have empathy, says, well, you know, if you've had a chat with a CEO, you know, this could turn into a letter of intent um, and kind of urging you almost to embellish. Discuss. <laughs> I'll give you a health warning. Don't lie. Yes. Lies kill deals, and they kill them at a very profound level. So I've seen deals where people have spent hundreds of thousands of pounds doing diligence, and they have discovered that one of the founders has lied over a trivial thing. So if you're raising money, you're asked to fill in a management questionnaire. And that says you know, various things about yourself, including, for example, your net worth. Um, a deal died simply because someone deliberately misstated and it went to trust. And they said, if I can't trust you with you telling the truth about this, how can I trust you with my money? So, so I think embellishment is one thing, and yeah. being optimistic and, and uh, you know, uh, you know, enthusiastic about your product, that's natural, and, and, but I can absolutely tell you it kills deals, and it kills deals when you can't, the, the, the materiality seems trivial, but it goes to trust. Of course, of course. Uh, I didn't imply to lie at all, uh, and I think honesty is, is number one, and it will always come back if, if you're not honest. Uh, the, the, the circles are much smaller than one would think. But I do believe that there is a, a strategic opportunism in, uh, in setting up a startup. So you've got to have your strategy and you've got to look for opportunities all the time. So if a friend of a friend is a CEO of a big company and you can have a word with him and he likes the idea and then he would bring you through the uh, front, you know, front door or the, the red carpet, there you go, you've got a potential proof of concept or, or partner or client. So that's how I would go around, you know, you just, as I said, you chew it and you digest it and you dream it 24-7 and you find these, these contacts, you know. Um, I remember when I set up uh, uh, Ultrashape, uh, the first company, I think for three years I couldn't talk about anything, probably it was quite boring, but anything but uh, the company or something that related to it, because it was all over. It was about raising funds, and it, it was then about sales, and, and, and you need these uh, connections, not just for raising funds, 
this exercise that <coughs> I talked about is for every uh, 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 the story that you create, the trust that you create. It's between you and your investors. It's between you and your your team. It's between you and the sales and clients. So this is something that will go with you throughout the journey. So uh, building. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to add something else as well. I think there's a, a, a bit of a myth that people who are labelled as entrepreneurs are somehow impetuous, impulsive, accept any risk. Most of the successful entrepreneurs I've met um, take risk, but they take acceptable risk. So they assess it. They don't just rush in when nowhere no fears to tread. They do take a considered view. And that's what I meant about just thinking it through, planning it. All the great entrepreneurs are risk takers, but only acceptable risk takers. No entrepreneur will take an unacceptable risk. So entrepreneurs are not gamblers, which is a big myth. You know, they're more comfortable with uncertainty, and I can only yeah. Um, yeah. Um, can, uh, uh, agree. So um, just in this notion of embellishing uh, the truth versus um, telling a lie, uh, earlier John said um, creating a competitive tension between um, investors. And again, really do not want you to go and uh, tell uh, Iris, uh, John is going to invest in me at a uh, pre-money valuation of 40 million. Uh, why are you offering me only 30 million? Because it's a really small village and Iris is going to pick up the phone and tell John, WTF, what are you doing? Where is this valuation coming from? So creating a competitive, a competitive tension is not making up playing investors against each other and telling lies and um, I you know yeah, it comes out of having a great team a great product a fantastic market um, that's what it, where it comes from and a lot of footwork yeah yeah no exactly and having a lot of investor in interest yeah. I thought Iris made a really good point about about when you present a plan I would say the best plans are the ones you can present to eight-year-olds or five-year-olds um, no acronyms just plain English if a five-year-old can understand it a venture capitalist can understand. And I'm not being sort of disparaging to VCs. I think that you have to be able to get it to a level where people understand it and get it. Because the number of times I've been in meetings where it's clear that someone hasn't understood the business. And once you go after the first slide, if they haven't got it on the first slide, they're basically switched off. So once more, can we please thank Iris before we move on to Ed? So uh, I'm Ed Griffiths, I'm a partner in DLA Piper, which some of you may or may not have heard, it's probably the biggest in, by some measure, law firm in the world. Um, so we do an awful lot of deals. We do an awful lot of deals across uh, lots of jurisdictions. So we're in the West Coast, the East Coast, et cetera, et cetera, uh, Berlin, all of the key tech hubs in the world, in fact. Um, and so what we try to do and what we're looking to do with um, early stage startups is you're, you know, we're not trying to make money out of you. We just want you to get bigger. Um, and, and really, we're very key at trying to uh, reduce the frictional cost of capital. And what do I mean by that? Just making things easier for investors. Um, and so uh, my tips today are, as you'd imagine from a dull lawyer, all about good housekeeping. Because God, does it cost you down the line. Um, when you're raising money, simple things matter. So I'm sort of you know, putting together the list. I'll come back to some of the points that John and Iris meant, uh, mentioned, because they have echoes of the experience we have on deals. But um, your ownership of IP 
back in the day, 20 years ago, people were a little bit lax about this sort of thing. You'd do a diligence process and people wouldn't know where the IP came from and it'd move along, etc. People are a lot more sophisticated about that now. If somebody has touched your IP in your company, you need to own it, um, straightforwardly. So they are an employee and you've got an, uh, an IP assignment in your um, employment agreement with them. Um, if they're a consultant, you have an IP assignment within the consultancy agreement. Clarity of IP ownership is key. So when they're diligencing these things, it's like an audit. They're literally ticking through everybody who's touched anything because they want to know that there are no holes in all of this. So that, that's a key point. And I'll give you the anecdote which I share with our teams about this. A number of years ago, I was doing a deal which is sort of circa 100, 150 million. Um, and we were coming to a closing meeting um, and it transpired that we were after the IP in the brand. Now, this was a tech company, but they had a nice logo. The nice logo was commissioned, and, you, and I am not joking, as we discovered it, in the pub, um, and in the pub with someone's mate. Someone's mate didn't happen to be in the room at the time when we were trying to negotiate with the investor um, about what we were going to do about ownership of the IP. That decision, that casual conversation, cost them millions simply from just being, you know, it, and it was so easily fixed, but at the last minute that's got, someone got, has got leverage to, to do things. So think about your IP. Um, think about employment agreements and who, who, who you're dealing with. Um, the other thing that we're talking around in our team about um, today and what, what anecdotes can share, um, know your investor. John mentioned it, you know, that, that investors you know, often just bring money to the party, and that, that anecdotally from our perspective is often true, but also knowing what you want from your investor. So sometimes it's absolutely fine because you're actually clear that you just want money. But if you don't just want money and you want something else, you either want their contacts or their expertise, how do you work out what's blarney, you know, what's, what's embellishment on the investor's time? Talk to the other portfolio companies. There are CEOs out there, there are CTOs out there, they will all be happy to talk, they'll all be happy to have a drink in the pub, have a little chat, and you'll get a colour of who's going to be on your board. Are they going to be useful to you? Are they going to be fine? Because they're not going to be annoying, because they're just going to sit and tick the box, and you might be happy with that. But know what you want out of your investor, because we see sort of relationships go sour um, as people realise that actually they aren't delivering to either people and um, what they want. Um, Another thing that costs people money is not having, it's all sort of under this thing of good housekeeping, um, having a simple capital structure. So who are your shareholders? So we're now talking about investors, so these are sort of quasi-institutional players. Along the way to getting to that, you often take on your friends and family. I don't know about you, but I only have a certain size friends and family, and it isn't that big. When we see um, portfolio company, or sorry, target companies, early stage companies with very broad-based um, shareholder bases, that is a nightmare. It's a logistical nightmare. It doesn't make a great deal of sense. So my cautionary tale would be: when you're bootstrapping, don't re you know really bootstrap. And when you take on serious money, take on serious money. So that goes John point. You know you you need enough money that you don't have to pay the cost of raising capital again soon. But having that complex structure because you've got lots of people who you can't get rid of, that it can be a real problem. And it can again kill things because people look at it and say, I can't invest in this because I can't get rid of all this tale of mums, dads, uncles, second, third cousins sort of thing. Um, that that is a challenge. Simple things. If you need anything else in your constitutional documents when you are taking on board money from the, you know, these friends and family, have something called a drag.
that is a perfectly legitimate thing that says, if I and my co-founders want to found this company, want to sell out, we can force everybody to sell out. You could do with so many things that you could sort of you know, pass off and say that this is bells and whistles in terms of your constitutional documents. But the ability to force a sale is crucial. It's what your investors will look for when they invest in you, and it's what you should come to them armed with if you have a very broad shareholder base, because you need to be able to clean that up, because no one wants to be doing offer rounds to 100 plus people every time you need to go and talk and raise some money. Um, the cost and timing point, um, Again, we see that people are always very ambitious in our experience about how long it's going to take to raise capital. Two, three months, maybe, in your dreams, if you're wildly six, 12. But if you get caught at the end of that phase, God, does it cost. You know, we act as investors too, and we know that point in your thing. If you've got a small payroll, and you're coming up to payroll Friday, and you can't pay, that is a very, very expensive conversation to be having when you're fundraising. Because believe me, people will push you. They'll find reasons to wait till payroll Friday. And then they'll say, ah, oh, but we've just got a bit of a problem. We just need to talk about price. So raising money well in advance, thinking about a long time, and being, and being sensitive to that runway, and being organized in the way that you present things. Um, teams are really, really good. Um, it's not about just the individual. You may have a tremendous CEO, but the amount of assurance that you can give by having your CFO or equivalent, a good administrator in the room who can talk about all the simple housekeeping matters and give the impression to the investors that you are well run and organized. It's, you know, you want somebody who wants the detail, not about the IP and all the clever bits, because there'll be the CTO to talk about that and the CEO to talk about that, but some of the administration, just to give them that assurance, it's all fine. And believe me, that stops people agonizing about diligence. They may not know anything about your business, but if you've got some obsessive nut who can give you every last detail of the, you know, the capex spend that you've done, your working capital projections going forward, and they're lost in that, they will stop because they'll think, I've got a nut on board, that's fantastic. I've got, you know, that's what I want to see. And to John's point, these aren't risk takers in the sense that they're just rolling the dice. They want to know that the numbers they're relying on are solid. And that's my, I guess, final thing is numbers. If you are about to give people numbers, do not disappoint. Be careful about your ambition. Um, so if you're saying it is today this, don't let those numbers go because there's nothing that knocks investors' confidence more than the, the numbers failing as you're going to make an investment. So yes, you can project out and think it's going to be great and fine, but at the moment in time that you slip on numbers or you find something that's wrong, that is when you will have an expensive conversation or a deal-killing conversation. Any quick question for Ed? Yes. I think all of you have mentioned team, but I'm kind of interested in drilling down into that a bit more um, in terms of, you know, there's three key teams, the management team, the board of directors, and potentially an advisory board. How important are each of those in a, a kind of VC round? And how do you, you know, how do you get those into play? Is it just kind of having an impressive pen portrait? Do you bring them into a pitch? Are they, you know, or is it really about the management team? Um, should I have first crack at that? Um, <clears throat> I, I wouldn't worry about advisory boards in a startup. I think that's for later. I, I think if you've got a good mentor, someone that knows your industry, someone that's known to the funders, that's really a good thing. 
because it will, it will balance any inexperience that the team has. I think what, um, what the, what the uh, funders want to see is enthusiasm, zeal, passion. Um, and I think if you've got that, and they see that you're realistic, you're sensible people, you've got great ideas, good product, understand the market, I think the rest will flow. So I think it's the best foot forward, best rock on, good team, the rest come, comes after. Uh, Ed, were you uh, referring to an ideal team size when you said that in front of investors it's nice to have a CEO, a CTO, and a CFO? So are you alluding that having a member, three members in a team is the ideal? I, I, um, I think it, it very much depends on where you are scale-wise. So in, in a very early stage company, I, I suspect having a CFO is a luxury one could do without. But, but you don't realistically need somebody with that, but you do need somebody who can actually count. And I'm just, you know, I mean, purged it, but it, it helps. So I wouldn't waste my time on that early, early on. When you get to a more mature stage, absolutely, but it's actually more, in my experience, if you're in, moving into private equity, it's five people. You know, you need the, the, the leads, and those would be HR as well. So, you, you know, or depending on what you're doing, the chief marketer effectively. Um, but at early stage, concentrate on the people who actually develop the IP and have the person who's, who's obsessing behind them. Thanks. I, I also think the, usually you see a CEO as being the person that's running sales and business development. VCs do want to see someone who's actually going to drive revenue. Um, I think, to Ed's point, I think financial, HR, often are part-time people. Um, so long as that's been taken care of and you've recognised there's a need for that, that's, that's all you probably need. Don't need to have them in the pitch. But a good CEO, very sales, business orientated, business development, uh, and a, someone who's going to look after the engineering product development um, is probably, it's something if only two people. You, you might only need two people at the beginning. We've heard quite a bit from the panel about the pros and cons of raising money from venture capitalists. Well, one thing you haven't mentioned, which Cambridge is very well equipped with, is business angels. And raising money from business angels, as I know, is a very different proposition from raising money from venture capitalists. So would the panel like to talk a bit about what the differences are and when you should make which choice? So uh, I'm not sure that we talked only about VCs. I think all of the advice that was given applies uh, to business angels as well. You know, about telling a story, about uh, knowing what your value proposition is, what the clear story is. I think, um, uh, I, I mean, I'll leave the panel to uh, elaborate on that, but I didn't hear a specific VC uh, advice. It was very general advice. Um, so so what we've seen in some times that you see business angels filling a gap. So there's a, almost a funding gap. There's this raising too little money. And, and I, my experience has been business angels are better at potentially plugging that very early stage gap than VCs. And so you have this dynamic where you're actually better off trying to raise five than three because no one, no one really wants to put three into anything. Whereas business angels it can be a bit more flexible. Um, my experience has been with business angels that if they are a well-organized business angel grouping, that can work quite well. But actually, what you can find is that you end up with a, 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 a body of quite animated individuals who are all sort of dropping into it. And, and you, you get quite a noisy sort of um, investor base to play with. And that can be quite difficult. So going back to my earlier point about having a drag, 
you do need to be able to get, to get these people out because they can be very, very noisy. Um, and if you want to get to the next stage, that can be problematic. But absolutely, I think they are a, a, you know, a vital part of the funding universe because they, they take risks and they will do the personal thing and it will be networked. And some of these business angels are superbly networked. So, so you know, stepping through, it facilitates growth very easily. Um, I, I agree with uh, Hanadi that the the the, the, um, the story is is in its core the same. We talk about the story itself. We talk about the team. We talk about uh, the, the truthfulness. Uh, I, I think that uh, one thing that I didn't mention is under promise and, and over deliver. All of these things are are true throughout the journey. But of course, uh, uh, angels would come before the, the private equity. They would come at the beginning, at the more beginning. They will take higher risk and they will be more uh, involved and uh, they could help or could distract. So you're in a sort of a, a, a gray zone. Um, I want, if I had one last thing to say is to stress what John said at the beginning. Always raise more money than you think you need. This is really so, so important because things will take longer and will be more expensive. And you want to make sure that your next round is at the time that you created a, an enough upside to keep your current shareholders happy and your next shareholders, maybe they will be even the, the first ones that will go for the next round, will be <coughs> eager enough to, to chip in. John, anything you'd like to add? Um, I think angels have a really good place. I think venture, cap, venture capital and angel risk profiles not too dissimilar. I think angels will understand your market better than some VCs. I think the thing you have to watch is you don't get too many cooks in the kitchen because you can get conflict between two or three passionate angels with different ideas, and what you don't want to be is caught in the middle of that. But they, they, will, they would certainly help you in the due diligence, in the formative stage, if you get the right. You get an angel group with one person representing the angel group on your board, that's probably the best way to do it. But they will be more informed about your business, and that will help you in the, third, in the early days. Thank you very much, um, all three of you. Um, can we thank them one more time, please? Thank you. Um, I'd like very much to open uh, questions to the floor. But before I do, I'd like to ask three really quick questions. Um, we talked, uh, there were a little bit of reluctance in the middle here about um, raising uh, too much money versus raising enough to not leave any value on the table. Um, that takes me to uh, what I call the vanity raises. Um, add, does it ring a bell? In terms of people just putting numbers on because they think they need to, it's five or ten people working around numbers. So, I mean. So uh, oftentimes people forget that it's about building a business and get too focused into how much money they've raised or how, many money, how much money they're going to raise. What is your reaction to that? Have you come across anyone? John, do you want to start? Yeah, um, I, I think venture capital it can be like a drug. People get hooked on it and against, against building a business and generating revenue. But it obviously, it will come to an end because a, a venture capital organization is not a philanthropist. 
But there are organizations that raise five or six rounds. And there's always the promise tomorrow. And they have you know, cooperative, supportive VCs. But um, they, 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 they think that the venture capitalist is going to provide the next round of funding. And that's where the drug thing, that's where the addiction comes in. But you've got to be taken off that addiction. And, and, and the way, only cure for venture capital addiction is growing revenues and becoming profitable. And the sooner you do that, the more valuable your business will be, the closer you will. It depends what your, I suppose, it depends what your ambitions are. But if your ambitions are to grow a business, to make a, to make a difference, to get some sort of financial independence through wealth creation, then the sooner you become profitable, or the sooner you generate revenue, rather, first revenue, then profits, the better. Anything uh, you'd like to add, Ed or Iris? Yeah, so the, I've seen businesses raise a lot of money, um, but they've been more mature businesses where their, their capacity to scale out is really, really being you know, sort of um, helped and aided by a, a grand plan. So, so this is where you've got proper buy-in from serious VCs who are saying, actually, we've got this addressable market and we are effectively doing this as a sort of, um, we're going to do it in tandem with you and we really are convinced. But it's much more mature than this stage. I, my anecdotally have seen too much money raised in companies and they get distracted by buying nice offices and all of the sorts of mm. noise and not get, getting good product. And once you've got great product, and then you, you, you're in a position to really scale, but it's much later in the, in the sort of devolution. I, I divide uh, uh, fundraising to two very crude groups. One is to develop a product, and the other one is to grow the business. All right? So to develop the product, you need a certain amount. You have to extrapolate it and, and look into the future. What is the minimum viable that would go into the market and how you can start creating a, a, a presence in the market, then you will keep developing your, your R&D will, depending on, on what sort of, of uh, business it is, but your R&D will probably keep on uh, going for many years just because you want to keep the edge. But, but you will have, you, you will veer off from the core R&D, which was just everything in the company, to uh, uh, supportive R&D and sales. When, when you get to sales, it's, you, you would also need a lot of money to, to uh, expand. And now it's a question and, and, and depends on your strategy, on your sector, on how, you know, on, on what, what your vision, what your dreams are. Uh, to do with uh, the company. I think that for growth, if the growth makes sense, uh, it will be a, a rather, if I can say easy, I don't like to use easy and fundraising together in one sentence, but uh, a smoother uh, uh, job because if you have sales already, you, you, you have proved that this is a good product, I suppose that you will be in a better state and your, your plan is good, uh, uh, you will be supported because the, the risk is, is less. At the beginning, you have to prove so many things. So um, uh, the other controversial point uh, that I felt, a lot of pushback from the audience, but no one commented on that. Um, but I saw literally physical pushback from the audience was when um, Iris said that um, you're not beggars that when you raise money, you actually have the upper hand because you have gold in your hands and you're inviting people to come and share. I saw people literally shaking their, he their heads. So um, would you like, uh, 
on the panel, would you have the same reaction as the audience or would you agree with uh, Iris? I just want to clarify. I, I don't think that you have the upper hand, but I think it's a win-win. I believe that um, it's, it's a dance together. You have to, to convince uh, the, the investor that you are the one candidate, the right candidate. But I've been into both sides, and both sides are challenging. When you need the money, it's challenging to get it. And when you have the money, it's challenging to, to invest in the right company. Okay, so I'm trying to, to look at it from, you know, from a place where, where I see both. And I say it's a dance. The two parties have something to offer, something to lose, but a lot to win if it's a good win-win. And that's what I'm saying. Go proud, present it properly, be truthful, and, and, and you will win. I think it's the difference between confidence, which is very attractive, and arrogance, which isn't. And so when you see these pictures, it really works with somebody delivering or a team delivering with confidence. That's wonderful. And a little bit of, you know, arrogant. But when people are over the top, that kills yeah. most people's emotions. I think raising money is not someone doing a favour for you. It's something that's justifiable, something you should be proud of. Yeah. And hopefully it will be a win-win situation. I think that's really what Iris's point you were making, wasn't it? Um, I think, you know, let's move on to questions to the audience, uh, from the audience. So... Any questions from the audience? Well, a question to the... Oh, another one here. Yes. Uh, hi, Iris. Uh, going back to your comment about this great team that pitched, we didn't have a business plan. Uh, but the team was great, and they were very credible. And then we said that uh, investors like to invest in people who have already delivered in the past because they have a good track record. Uh, and I'm slightly confused about one thing, and that's if someone has already delivered and have a, has a good track record, then they should be able to prepare a good business plan. Uh, so I'm just wondering exactly how important a business plan is in, 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 in this pitches. So I understand that having a credi credible team is incredibly important, having a good product. Uh, you know, um, okay, I will, I will tell you about this, uh, just I will elaborate about this team in, in a minute. But sometimes when I, uh, when I look at, uh, at new business and... Uh, I look at a wish list of a new business, it reminds me uh, of um, a, a girl or a boy writing a list of the of description of their mate, of the, their, the, the, the ideal companion. Okay, you can make a long list and then something else will come and it will be totally different. Okay, it's the same thing. You could think that you want the, the investor to be this and you want the... the uh, um, the the, uh, the environment to be in a certain way, and then many things will happen, and you will have to adjust and change and, and go along and just make the right adjustments just to survive and to to better your your business in all in a truthful way. And, and please don't take it in in any other way. It's just very dynamic, especially at the beginning. Um, when you are at when you have just an idea, of course, you play a much higher role in how you present and what, what you tell about your, uh, um, your business. And therefore, you need 
a general business plan in order to be able to answer all these questions, right? Because an investor will ask you, so what do you think will happen? What will happen in one year? What will happen in half a year? What will, do, will you do with the money, right? So for all of these things, you need a, a business plan. This team was not, uh, was a first timer. I have to say it was not here in England. It was uh, in Israel where things happen much quicker and probably a cybersecurity arena is very, is a very fast moving uh, business there. It would not have happened here. So it's a bit unfair to give maybe this example to, to this audience, but it did happen. The business plan that they had was not what I call business plan, but just a very general uh, view. And it was led by the history of it. And I wanted to, and I made a point there, just because it did happen. And it was, uh, and, and they did get the, the investment, and I'm not saying they, they didn't sit with an Excel and go through it, but they had a solid, uh, uh, picture of what, where they want to be and what they want to be, uh, uh, where they want to get. And they were passionate enough and their background, although they didn't, it was their first uh, startup, but the background was uh, strong enough to convince investors just to put the money in. Yeah, um, so imagine you're the captain of the QE2 and you're in Southampton Docks. Your business plan is, I'm going to go to New York, or I'm going to go to Johannesburg. That's the way to look at the business plan. It's, it's charting a course. And the other way to think about it, I don't know if you've ever read Rudyard Kipling's books, but I think The Elephant's Child. Um, ask yourself all the interrogatives. Why, who, when, how. Just keep asking you those interrogatives. And by the time you've answered those questions, you probably have a business plan. Yeah, and it, it serves another purpose. We've mentioned milestone investing. So for those of you who don't know, that's effectively where you, you sign up to a VC and a VC says, I'll give you X today, and when you hit this condition, I'll, I'll give you Y, and when I hit this condition, I'll give you Z. And, and from your purposes, having a business plan which has those clear milestones, you're setting up that conversation straight away. So it gives you that effectively a drawdown. I've got an objective condition. If I satisfy it, you then give me the money. And what you absolutely want to be in that position is in real clarity that you can hit those numbers or, or whatever it is in terms of IP development, etc. So it can form a useful sort of um, route map to funding through the course of investment. Yes, could I, could I have? I, I think that the business plan is really really important. The, the, the last example was really anecdotal. But what I love doing is creating a few business plans because the Excel can, can take anything, right? So you start in one way. It's, it's more a thinking process that is so essential to understand what you as, uh, as um, an entrepreneur really want to, what's important for you as an entrepreneur. Um, do you want to stretch it? Is time to market crucial? How crucial is it? Does it mean, and, and in, in, the, in our investment committee, and many times I ask, if you had more money, would it change your time to market? Because I think time to market is one of the most crucial uh, uh, factor that is not uh, calculated in, into a business plan. And, and these are questions that you will have to ask with your team. Do I want to have to employ two people a month so that 
I just get to the market as quickly as possible, maybe five people a month if it's feasible, and then raise a lot and, 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 and get to the market because it is crucial. Or sometimes, actually, it will not matter. If you have more people at the beginning, you will not make a big difference because you need to wait sometimes for certain results to then decide how you develop your product. So all of these uh, questions will arise when you work through your business plan. So as I said, I'm yet to see one business plan that really happened, but it's a fantastic process to go through as an entrepreneur. So I'm, I'm getting worried uh, by the questions because um, for me, a business plan is not an external document. Before it becomes an external document that you shop around to investors, it's actually an internal document. Um, you know, there's a famous saying that says, uh, failing to plan is planning to fail. Uh, your business plan is actually you saying, this is my goal. This is how I'm going to achieve it. It's asking yourselves the WH questions, um, which are so crucial. And once you've done those, then uh, you achieve um, two things. You know where you would like to go. And you know your destination is there. Um, you know, are you going to? What are the examples you gave on the ship on the QE2? Where are you going? Well, going from Southampton to New York or Johannesburg, so, or you know, you need to know the chart. Your and you know, if you're going to Southampton, uh, it's different. You need different resources from going to New York. So it's really knowing what's your ultimate destination and what are the resources you need. So that's the first one, which is really important. The second one is internal. Again, it's about the team alignment. Um, there are two, three, four people incredibly busy working in a startup, and oftentimes they're working in silos. And do they have, you know, this internal vision? And creating, crafting a business plan together is really important. Um, as an angel investor, I can tell you that most of the business plans that I see are bad work of fiction. And oftentimes, you know, I, um, you know, if I want to read bad work of uh, fiction, you know, I've got four children, I could read that or I could go and read Jane Austen. But what I look into a business plan is, have they asked themselves the right questions? They may not have the right answers, but have they actually asked themselves the right question? And have they tried hard enough? You know, it doesn't matter, it's not about, um, it's like maths, it's not about the result, it's about the thought process. And even if at an early stage you don't have all of the numbers, you don't have everything that you want to put in, and you don't have, because if you did, you know, you would be raising money from a private equity. But it's, what are your assumptions? What is your thought process? And that's really important. Okay. Um, so, we've got many questions now. So we are going to take one from here, one from here. We're going to uh, play the... Uh, uh, hello. Uh, I was wondering, if you are starting a company in the UK, um, should you be looking for funding from UK investors, or should you also look to, to America, to South America, to Germany, I know, Asia? And uh, from personal experience, how is the style of what the investors there are looking for? How does that differ? Um, okay, so we're so I'll try and be global and not not too UK orientated. Um, the states they get it out quicker and they uh, they uh, they deploy more money more rapidly, more cost effectively at the moment than in the UK. 
period. And, it, and it's, it, it's just one of those things. If you have access to US venture capitalists at the moment, they are very, very keen to invest um, and they are looking globally because it's very expensive in the valley. So I think you have to look globally. Um, you could, the UK is actually not a bad place to raise money because we are a relatively sophisticated market which attracts a lot of international money. So you, by dint of raising in the UK, you get access to international funds. I think as you start to move out into some of the other continental European markets, I would say this, wouldn't I? I think it possibly is a little bit more closed. That may not continue when, uh, as Brexit sort of you know really boils into a... Uh, I'm not allowed to say this, but... The, the, the challenges we are seeing in terms of where money is now going is, is potentially away from the UK in reality. But for the moment, it's a good, it's a good place, but the States is it's different. Um, I would say it really depends how, how reachable these markets are for you. I mean, you may spend a lot of time as, as a very young startup looking around far away while you have fantastic schemes here. Uh, one of them is EIS, Enterprise Investment Scheme, that maybe uh, some of you know about. Uh, this is a very attractive uh, scheme for investors because they get immediately, they get 30% back from the government and all the, uh, um, all the upside uh, is tax, uh, they don't have to pay tax on. Uh, this is a, a great scheme that uh, bring in uh, angel investment, and uh, it makes it much easier. I would say that if you fall into the category there, I would go through that. And I, I said uh, strategic opportunism, and I mean, I, I really mean it. I, I lived it all my life, meaning we always wanted a certain way, and then we looked around. What do we have? If I have an uncle in America that has, you know, a fund there and, and so many con contacts, then I would try. But if I don't know anybody there, I wouldn't start. It would take you a long time and I don't see that you will have any, uh, any, any advantage going so far. It will be very expensive. John, anything you'd like to add? Um, I think there's enough money in the UK and close by funds and ideas. Um, just on the American side, I think that um, you have to be very careful with some American investors who want you to be an American company for them to invest in. Uh, and there is this um, thing now called CFIUS in the US, which is the thing that's been going for some time. It's the Committee for uh, Foreign Investment in the United States. And if you build a successful business and you're a US corporation and it's an overseas buyer, particularly Chinese, um, you will probably find that very difficult to be approved. Uh, yeah, I, I should be careful. So I think you, you need to recognise if you are raising US money, that may well mean that you are moving to the US. So the, the dangers of having US investors, certainly West Coast investors, and trying to run a company where they are, you know, that, that time lag is a pain. And if they have to get on a plane that's expensive for you, it's impractical, you can't get decisions out of them quickly. And there will be, John's point, you know, there will be pressure to rebase the US in reality. There's very few of them that don't see that as a... Yeah, the, t the time zone's a really good point, actually. I mean, we have, um, we have offices in Taiwan and we have UK offices here in Cambridge, uh, a lab, and we also have um, an office in Palo Alto and investors in Palo Alto. It is a nightmare to connect all three together. Yeah. From my experience, uh, and I've been doing it in three countries, India, Israel, and the UK, my experience is that investors like to invest in companies that are in the same jurisdiction. 
and uh, therefore I would choose the, the easier route in this sense. So um, in the UK you also have the SEIS, which means that angel investors um, have a better tax uh, credit um, on that. And this is something that a lot of uh, US companies are very envious of the UK. And um, there, to, to go about the time zone, there is a rule, which is the bicycle rule, which is investors shouldn't invest further than they can cycle. Uh, simply because if it's, it's cost opportunity for them in terms of uh, if they need to attend board meetings, um, you know, how much of their time is going to be wasted traveling to that company. And equally, the time, I mean, I can't, uh, I, the, running a company with investment that is, not, that is more than three hours is just absolutely a nightmare. So. Yeah, and you want to build an intimate relationship with your funders. And that means they need to be reasonably close by. And that, that was a point you made earlier on. This, this continual conversation with your investors is so important. Managing that conversation so there are no people hate surprises. Uh, and yet yeah, being able to actually have a coffee, whatever. So as I say, I think there's places to raise, but you would need to be prepared to move. We're going to take two more questions. So there's one here. All right. Thank you for your presentations. Uh, my question is about valuation. Um, to the panel, and um, I think Iris mentioned you should look at investment or fundraising in two stages. Um, you know, when you're developing the product and when you're thinking about sales. So, how would you approach? Um, probably your valuation at the very beginning includes the sales as well, but obviously the investors would like to see a product before you know. Yeah. I mean, well, valuation at the beginning is this you think what your company is valued and you, you test it with investors. Uh, you come and you say, you know, I started a company three months ago, I think it's worth 10 million pounds. I don't think you'll be very popular. You have to, and you say, you know, because the, the market scope, it's going to be very big, but you just started. So you, you look around, you, you try to justify it with what you have, what assets do you have? Assets are your team, assets are your idea. Is it IPable? Is it, uh, how fast will it be in the market? All of these things would come together and form something that would make sense. Uh, you should, if you can, postpone your, your uh, by the way, and also industry uh, endorsement, you know, how eager is the industry. So all of these would add up together to, to some valuation. And then you will struggle with your investors. They will say, well, it does make sense, you know, if you're too high. And then, and then at a certain point, you, they will, they will uh, agree with you because they don't, in my, from my experience, and correct me if I'm wrong, they don't want you to be left with 20% of the company because you will lose all your motivation. So this will also be uh, another uh, factor. So it depends on the amount that you raise and uh, what you're offering, uh, how advanced you are, uh, how risky this is. When you have sales, it's a totally different uh, uh, case because you have formulas and it is much easier to, to agree on valuation. Thank you. 
curious to know the panel's opinion on the assessment of the credibility of the individual and the team. What are the criteria that are measured and what are the priority for each? And if you could provide examples, please. So I'm interested in the panel's opinion on the assessment of the credibility of the individual and the team uh, of the company. What are the criteria that are measured and what are the weighting or importance of each? And if you could provide examples, please. Well, it's difficult. The, the, the legals we, we, we see, we see effective teams. Um, we know what they ask them um, about in terms of the, the, the questionnaires that people ask. But, but in terms of the assessment, um, anecdotally, it seems to be a lot about the, 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 the CEO is crucial and that, that, that you have to have a leader. Um, I've never seen anybody back a team where it is, it, it's um, some sort of commune. You know, there, there is a natural leader and people look for that, in my experience. But the team is an important component. It, 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 I defer to Iris, really, in terms of... Yes. Uh, John, anything you'd like to add? I think um, the team needs to reference well. Mm. I think the team dynamics are really important. So when you're in a room presenting, the way in which you inter interplay with each other is really important. If there's any tension or you get a sense that maybe person A doesn't get on with person B, that's not really very good. Um, I think having a good CV that people can understand, that's part of the referencing. Um, if you have a mentor, I mean, going back to the, you get judged by the company you keep. So you have a mentor with you who's really good, known by the community, and he's working with you. That sort of starts to give you referencing. You know, it starts to give you more credibility yourself. So I think all these things are really quite important. But in the end, I think people have instinctive judgments about people. We all have, we all form very, very quick opinions about people we meet within probably the first 10 seconds. Uh, and, and the more experienced you are, the more lasting and, um, and, and, re and real those impressions will be. So I think first impressions are really important. That's the way, you, the way you dress, the way you turn up, the way you answer questions, the courtesy you extend. All those things are really quite important. Um, but I think most important of all is, uh, is that you have a good, articulate team that sort of work well together because you're going to have to be working together after you've raised the money. Yeah. I, I think that if, if we look at the team, I, I will divide it to the CEO and, and then more professional uh, um, uh, positions. The CEO is the only one without a specific position uh, of, of expertise. So... He could come, I mean, CFO needs to know numbers, right? Uh, CTO needs to know the technology. CEO needs to be a leader. It's not enough to be a manager. There is a big difference between a manager and a leader. A leader would be one that will pull the team together to, to the sky. And you can see it in the pitch. You can you can uh, see how, how they, the, 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 the harmony and, and uh, what John said. Very easily you can see it, but you can see how he pitches. Is he, you know, is he talking from his heart? The same way he will talk to the team, the same way he will talk when he sells. So for a CEO, it's the background, but mainly his soft skills, his, his ability to, to take this and make it happen. Or her abilities. Or her abilities. <laughs> so uh, my favorite choice. Just, um, 
I think there is no one answer to your question because there is not one size um, round. So at the earlier stage, uh, when the business angels are investing, it's very much about the individuals. It's what uh, John was describing as the 10 seconds test. Uh, some people have three-minute tests, other people have, you know, depending on their age and their degree of tolerance, uh, will have uh, five or ten seconds. So John is still very young. Um, there, there are people who make snap decisions as the way you look. So that's one that's really important. So at the very early stage, it's really about the team and not just about how well they're presenting uh, the tensions amongst themselves, but also when they're pushed, when they're being asked difficult questions, <coughs> are they brushing it away or are they taking it into consideration? Then, when you raise more serious money, there is more serious due diligence. I've heard of VC firms asking for references, not just mentors. So, um, oftentimes, I'm referenced when companies are raising between 1 and 15 million. And uh, I then spend uh, one hour, two hours on the phone being interviewed by four VCs on a conference call. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, I feel drained afterwards, so I don't want to know what the, the CEO feels afterwards. Some VCs do psychometric testing. Um, and then more money you raise, you get into questionnaires, you get into pers uh, private detectives, uh, you know, following you in private equity. It is, you know, when you're raising that kind of money, then you really have that level. So there's not one answer to your question. It depends on where you are uh, in raising money. But, but you can, you, may I just make one other point? You can actually tell whether it's working because. You know, most, when you go to VCs, most of them like this, sitting back. But if you can get them like this, sitting forward, you know you've actually, you know you're succeeding, and you have to get your team to do that, get someone to sit forward. We sit in our own committee. We have presentations, and I can see the whole committee actually sitting forward, whereas often they're just sitting back, and you think... But, I mean, I was sitting there watching you while the panel was presenting, and I was trying to read your body language to uh, generally to everybody in the room to certain points that were made. And I could see the contentious points, but you're all too polite in English to actually challenge the panelists, so I brought them up. But body, do not underestimate body language. And when you've done it for a long time, um, you can really see the unspoken tensions. So if the CEO and the COO are not getting on, you can see it. And in the questions, the way, you know, if you have clear defined roles, which is something that I really love in a team, when you're taking questions, naturally, you know who's going to answer it, rather than people trying to show the other one better and complimenting. And sometimes by complimenting, you are actually undermining. And people don't read that. They don't practice it enough. Um, yeah. 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 Final question. How do you raise money when things go wrong and you find yourself caught up in the middle of the river? Caught up in? In the middle of the river. It's difficult. So you need to, um, we, we say to teams we meet, um, and this isn't being pessimistic, plan for the worst but hope for the best, expect the best. So always look at what the, the, the worst case outcome could be of your, of your business and your situation. What could go wrong? What's likely to go wrong? Make sure you can plan around that, but then execute to the best and hope that the worst doesn't happen. If you cover the worst, in many cases you should be okay, but if you're in the middle of the river, you've underestimated something, and if it's money, 
it's quite hard. Unless, of course, your investors ploughed so much money into your business that they're defending a situation that they're in, in which case they'll probably keep supporting you. But if you've only raised a bit of money, it's really hard. I think it's about this point about keeping them informed. You, you, in order to get to the middle of the river, you've gone on a journey there, and you've probably got early warning, certainly if you're in the middle rather than just towards the end, that something is going wrong. Having that discussion and keeping people appraised, yeah. that, that's hugely yeah. important. Do, you know, it's, it's turning up at the yeah. middle and saying, I'm here. That's yeah. not very clever, and that, that's yeah. what kills that's, things. Yeah. It's managing uh, expectations. Yeah. Exactly. I, I agree with both of you. I tell my team, I love hearing good news, but bad news tells me much faster. So if there is the beginning of a potential bad news, you've got to communicate with your investors. Now, it really depends why you're in the middle of the river and, 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 and uh, lost. Whether the product uh, that you, you started was proved to be not a good product, that's one way. Or it could be that you, you were a little naive when you planned and uh, all of a sudden you, you instead of one patent you have now 10 patents and the market is much bigger then uh, obviously uh, you will be looked at much more positively and and be supported but I think your relationship with your your investors this is a key you've got to to adjust expectations as you go it's it's our problem not your you know your problem so if you share early with your investor you get some buy into trying to cure it versus just presenting as oh i've got a problem no it's our problem we're, we're all in this together yeah. i think it's a great question and i think it's a great question to end it on because it wraps everything that the panel has um, um, summarized tonight. It's uh, a journey, it's a story that you're telling, it's uh, a relationship that you're building, it's about transparency and honesty, and it's also about the cost of raising capital. So um, if you've done your job properly and you're stuck in the middle of the river, your investors will feel that they're drowning with you and they will want to help you. But if you haven't, they might actually let you drown to make you suffer a little bit and then make you pay extra for the money you need to raise to cross. So um, everything that the panelists uh, have told you tonight is wrapped into that question. So thank you very much for the question and a huge thank you to our amazing panel, please.